So raise your hand if you were the one who would be picking on other kids at school. Anyone? Yeah, okay, okay. We had No one in the 8 o'clock service uh, admitted to that. So they either lied or we had no bullies in the first service. Uh, raise your hand if you were the one who would win a spelling bee. Anyone? Yeah, okay, okay, I like that. Uh, that was not me. Raise your hand if you were the one failing math. Anyone? Yeah, oh man, all right. Don't go into business with those people. Uh, raise your hand if you were the one trying to be the teacher even if you were not the teacher. Me? Okay, okay. So when, and, and when I was in first grade, I remember correcting the substitute teacher on how to spell a word, and I remember his face turned as bright red as his hair was uh, because I, uh, a five-year-old or six-year-old or whatever corrected how he spelled things. Yeah, uh, there, there was also, in school, there was always that kid, right, who would ask the professor a question, uh, not because they were curious and, and needed an answer, but really because they wanted to display how smart they were. You guys know who I'm talking about. Uh, I was one of those kids that made fun of that kid, okay? Even in seminary, e even in the guys who were trained to be pastors, I, I made fun of those guys. But uh, there was also, I'm not going to ask you if you're one of those people. Uh, I was one of these people. I was someone who wanted to know every loophole of every rule in every classroom because I wanted a way to beat the system. I wanted to, to be the type of kid who thought that while I adhered to the rules, I knew how to really live above the rules. And I think that as, as I reflect on that, at least in my own heart, uh, it, it reflects for me often a heart that wanted to have control over everything, that wanted to know every loophole so I could live above the law. We like to be people who go up to the line and, and toe the line and say we don't cross it, but oftentimes we do that instead of trusting God with every situation that we may not particularly like. See, that's why I wanted loopholes. I wanted loopholes so that I could uh, beat whatever I didn't like about whatever teacher or principal was, I thought, getting me in trouble. How should our discipleship to Jesus affect the way we trust what he says in all aspects of our lives? Well, that's what we're going to look at together. And, and as Austin said last week, yes, we have spent a year in Mark chapter 9. And yes, we are finally in Mark chapter 10. Uh, this is the second half of, of, of the gospel of Mark. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and and there's this call in the beginning of, of Mark 10 to discipleship that affects all aspects of our lives. Uh, marriage and how we treat even the least of these, like children, and even our possessions. And so that's what we're going to be doing the next three weeks. We're going to see how discipleship to Jesus affects marriage, how it affects how we view people like children, and how we view even our possessions. Uh, but let's pause for a moment and, and go to our verse of the series, uh, Mark 10, 45. Uh, and I encourage you, if you have not gone to our website and put the verse on as your like, lock screen, I memorize verses 10 times faster by having it on my phone that I have to look at every time before I open it. It's so helpful. If you don't have it on your lock screen, you can see it on the screens up here this morning. Let's say Mark 10, 45 together. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray this morning for our hearts. Heavenly Father, would you help us to be changed by Mark chapter 10? Would by your spirit, would you work in our hearts and, and conform us to the image of Christ? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. As you guys are turning to Mark 10, if you, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture passage is inside your sermon notes, so you're able to, to, to reference that. But while you're turning there, here's what I want us to, to uh, walk away with this morning, what I, what I think Mark is, is getting at. Here's the big idea this morning. Marriage is God's wise design. So in our discipleship, don't let sin separate what God has joined together. So marriage is God's wise design. So in our discipleship, don't let sin separate what God has joined together. Well, let's read through Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, and, and, and then we'll, we'll break that down a little bit. Here's, here's what Mark writes, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there. And went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, here are the three things we want to look at this morning as we're breaking this down. We're going to look at the first five verses of, of Jesus' heart test. We're going to look in verses 6 through 9 at God's design for marriage. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 12, God's anti-desire for marriage. So let's look at Jesus' heart test. We, we, we know that, that discipleship to Jesus means that Jesus is Lord over everything in our lives. In fact, it's unreasonable for us to pick and choose which parts of our lives Jesus is Lord over and which ones we try to maintain control over. Just as believers don't go to Jesus like a buffet line where they pick and choose which part of Jesus to like and not like, nor can we choose and pick the parts of our lives that we want God to have authority over and those that we want to have authority over. And so it's been said that, that in our lives, Jesus is either Lord over all or not Lord at all. Mark points out three areas that the next three weeks that the discipleship to Jesus is over all of our lives, uh, marriage and children and possessions. And so each week we're going to look at one of those aspects. 
And this morning, Jesus says that discipleship to him is connected with our human relationships. It's connected with marriage. And so whether you are married today or not, this is important for us for our own discipleship. And so in Mark 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's in an area that, that's influenced by, by Jewish understanding and thinking. And Jesus was teaching in verse 1 uh, because teaching was a major part of Jesus' ministry. Right? Often the main topic was about God's kingdom. What, do, what does God's kingdom look like? What does discipleship look like? So if you remember Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is like... Or, if anyone would follow me, he must. Right? This was common teaching of Jesus. Uh, this occasion of Jesus' teaching included Pharisees who didn't like Jesus' teaching. Crowds of people gathered to Jesus. Literally, they flocked around him to learn from Jesus. But the Pharisees, they didn't want to learn from Jesus. They didn't want to change and live for the glory of God, only for the glory of themselves. So if you remember, Pharisees literally means called out ones or separated ones. And so a Pharisee was a religious and a political party of the New Testament. Uh, they were known for insisting that the law of God be observed as the scribes interpreted it. So they had special commitment to keeping the laws of, of tithing and, and ritual purity. And they seemed ready to criticize others for not keeping the laws as they thought they should. While they were often paired with the Sadducees, uh, the Sadducees were, were mostly rich landowners and, and powerful priests, but the Pharisees were just ordinary people. But we know that from other parts of the New Testament, their, their religion didn't hold much water, right? Minor details became major preoccupations. They neglected the more important things, right? So if you remember Jesus' discussion to them about, about how they would not support their parents because they had dedicated things to God that was called Corbin, they were looking for loopholes in how to actually obey God. And so the Pharisees observed the, out, the law outwardly, but their hearts were far from God, Jesus said. They trusted in themselves, thinking that they were righteous and could live up to God's standards. I think that's part of their motivation for trying to know every minute detail of interpreting the law, like the Sabbath and divorce and taking oaths and, and even how long the tassels could be on the clothing. And so here we are, the Pharisees want to know about divorce. When can divorce happen? And I love Jesus. Man, he doesn't play their game. He doesn't just give them a straight answer. Uh, he doesn't, in fact, answer them. He asks them a question. And Jesus asked the type of question that would reveal their true hearts. It was a hot-button topic issue uh, because there were two main schools of thought in that time. Uh, one school said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. The other school said a man could divorce his wife only for sexual immorality. And it was all based upon how the scribes would interpret a, a passage from the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 24. Now, that was actually a passage that, was, uh, that described a law that was to keep a man from marrying his first wife again after she marries another man if the second marriage doesn't work out, okay? So, so nothing at all what you would think that they're trying to interpret here. But they would interpret that in such a loose way that any unpleasant reason was reason enough to divorce. So there were cases of divorcing because of a bad meal being prepared. Well, thankfully, that is not 
That is not a reason for today, actually. But what we do see, that, that we see revealed from the Pharisees, are loopholes that reveal rebellious hearts. See, it wasn't only certificates of divorce, but in many areas, Pharisees looked for ways around God's word to fulfill their own desires while it appeared like they loved God's word. Loopholes reveal rebellious hearts, not trusting hearts. And we have that same problem. Often we look for how close we can come to touching a line that we are told not to cross instead of looking for ways where we live out what is truly better by, by living out the kingdom of God. Christian, I wonder in what ways do you try to touch the line that you know you shouldn't cross instead of staying away from it like God's word warns us of. Right? Outward compliance with inward loopholes creates a context where we, where we test God, just like the Pharisees are testing Jesus. Uh, testing God instead of submitting to his word then reveals a lack of trust. It reveals a lack of true joy in our relationship of submitting to Jesus. And, and ultimately, this testing of God seeks to live by our own standards instead of living by God's word. Right? We, sh we should be reminded that, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. So Christian, in what ways do we need to live by God's word and, and not neglect it and not try to loophole it for our own desires? The question may have been a theology quiz from the Pharisees, but it was a heart quiz from Jesus. And Jesus explained so in verse 5. He says in verse 5 that Moses wasn't granting them special privileges because of how well they followed God's word. For the Pharisees to even discuss what God allows because of a hard heart instead of what God's design is, well, that actually reveals a misguided focus, doesn't it? True discipleship, Jesus teaches, is not lived out in light of concessions that God has given us because of sin. No, true discipleship lives by God's ultimate divine intention. So divorce then and divorce now is the result of sin being involved in a relationship. If the Pharisees cared about what God cared about in marriage, instead of looking for permission for divorce, wouldn't their question be, Jesus, how do we maintain and reconcile marriages? But that's not what they asked him. By giving the commandment to Israel, God was not putting his approval on divorce or even encouraging it. He was actually trying to restrain it uh, to make it more difficult for the protection of the wives. See, marriage is God's wise design. And so in our discipleship, we should not let sin separate what God has joined together. Let's look at this second part, what God's design for marriage is, right? Jesus had addressed the hard hearts uh, of, of, of Israel instead of following God's design for marriage in, in verse five. But then instead of answering the question, Jesus shows the true intent of marriage, which will ultimately answer their conflict. 
Jesus goes back further than Moses. He doesn't say, well, here's what Moses should have said. No, no, Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, to creation itself, which, remember, God called good. God created humanity as male and as female, and God's design for the two of them is to become one flesh. So marriage wasn't an accident, it wasn't an afterthought, or it wasn't even a compromise. Marriage is divinely designed since creation. And so if we wouldn't deny God's good design in making morning and night, well, then we shouldn't deny God's good design in making two become one flesh in marriage. If we are in awe of God's creation of of birds in the sky and animals in the waters, then we should be in awe of God's creation of one flesh between one man and one woman. If we wouldn't deny God creating two genders, male and female, well, then we shouldn't deny God's purpose of one flesh in marriage. If we believe in God's good purpose of putting the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, then we should trust God's good purposes for his creation of marriage as a design of good. We wouldn't want God to decreate or to destroy his world for his creation and design is good. And so neither do we want to destroy what God has designed as good from creation by separating what God has joined together. God's intention for marriage today is that we leave the family that we are born into, that we cleave to this new union together, and that we weave a new life together. I think it's important for us, especially in this day and age, to recognize that as Jesus defines marriage, he does so only in a one male and one female distinction. And so it's good for us to hear this morning that marriage is between a husband and a wife, one man and one woman. God has designed marriage, and so therefore he also gets to define marriage. It doesn't include the same gender, nor does it include multiple people. There's no one else in the picture. There's no competing loves. There's no competing covenants. There's no competing promises or relationships. And so if we wouldn't deny the importance of God creating plants and trees and vegetables, then we shouldn't deny God's importance of making one flesh marriage between one man and one woman. We should also see this morning that from what what Jesus is saying, that marriage is a one flesh union. Uh, This doesn't only refer to a sexual union, uh, but there, it's about they are becoming a new creation a, a, and they are dying to their old selves. Uh, the two become one. And so individualism comes to die in marriage. Now, that doesn't mean you're not still you. It doesn't mean that you can't have friends. It means that you're willing to give up your rights to live your life however you want. And what you're doing is you are pledging to live your life for the benefit and good of the other spouse. That's why there are vows that that say, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. It's a commitment in the good times and the hard times. And so a marriage is an agreement of both people, not to be done under duress, not to be forced, 
but we actually see later on it is the providential will of God. So Christian, if you are married, where do you need to apply the one flesh union in a fresh way to your marriage? Where do you need to sacrificially serve your spouse? Because in verse 9, Jesus ends with a warning that since it is God who has created oneness in marriage, we should not break what God has unified. So divorce, no matter how nuanced or, or, or justified, breaks apart God's intention for human marriage. Every divorce at some level witnesses to a failure of upholding God's purpose in marriage. The two become one, and divorce destroys the unity of God's good design. Maybe you're single here this morning, and you're thinking, well, what does a passage like this have for me since I'm not even married? Maybe you are someone who desperately wants to get married, and you've thought that if you could only get married, then you would be happy with life. Well, friends, I think that even talking about divorce especially in the context of where people who are single, is, is a picture of a reality that says happiness doesn't come from another person. Happiness is only found in God. Friend, marriage does not fix the issue of being unhappy. Only joy in being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will do that. If you are pursuing relationships as a single person, you should know that ultimately you should be pursuing them for marriage. We want to actually, because marriage is a design from creation, that, that to ultimately not stay married but to be in relationships actually says something bad about marriage that we don't want to be saying. And if you are pursuing relationships as a single person, don't pursue someone who's already married. There's a call that what God has joined together, don't be part of the equation to separate that union. Also know that one flesh union is actually only a greater picture of Jesus' relationship with his bride. It's, it's interesting. Paul, in Ephesians 5, quotes the exact same passage that Jesus does here. He says this in Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul continues to write in verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so this description of marriage actually points toward Jesus' love of his people. And so an important way to understand God's love towards us is looking at human marriages on earth and how Jesus is so committed to our welfare that he gave himself up for us. The, the permanent love of Christ towards us is to be reflected in the till death do us part of human marriages. Imagine if we were to say God has such great love for us that he sent his only son into the world to then take the penalty for our sin, to die on the cross for our sins, and then on the third day to be raised, and then after 20 years he's going to get tired of you. No. No, God's great love is that he doesn't get tired of us, even despite our sin, even despite our weaknesses, 
even despite how we are unfaithful to him? No, Jesus' great love for us is so incredible that he has gone to great lengths. He has done great things that we were just singing about for us. That he will not let anything separate us. He doesn't even let our sin separate us from him. And he never will. That's how incredible God's love is. And so the permanent love of Christ towards us is actually designed to be reflected in the till death do us part of human marriages. But what about those who've been divorced? Right, maybe you're here today and you've been divorced and uh, here's what you should hear and here's what you should not hear. You should hear that God's intention for marriage is lifelong. You should not hear that if you are divorced, you were automatically sinful in doing so. Right? It could be entirely because of the sin of the other spouse. Think of a couple who, where one has had an affair and, and wants a divorce, and the faithful party seeks reconciliation, wants marriage counseling, and the cheating spouse wants nothing to do with it. That couple might end up divorced, but it doesn't mean that uh, both parties were sinful in that. In fact, it may even mean that the divorce itself isn't automatically sinful. We should hear this morning that while divorce is a public reality, there are many private sins that are just as bad. Divorce is not the sin beyond God's merciful hand. If you're here and, and you've experienced divorce, it might be helpful to remember that God himself is actually divorced. That's what he describes in Jeremiah 3. He gave Israel a certificate of divorce for her unfaithfulness to himself. And yet God's promise didn't end there. He had much greater redemption in mind and planned beyond that. And so the marriage pattern established at creation is leave, cleave, and a weave relationship. Spouses are to leave their families and cleave to one another and to weave lives together. That's actually the pattern for continued one flesh in marriage. And so the more you cleave to your spouse and not to other things, the stronger your relationship will be, right? Living separate lives, but just coming home at night isn't enough. You need to rely on each other weaving your lives together so that you do things together is an important part of weaving as God sees it. So married couples, how might you continue a healthy relationship pattern by cleaving to each other and weaving your lives together to strengthen your marriages? If God intends for marriage to be for life, then seeking reconciliation and not separation is most likely God's intention for your marriage, even if it's on the rocks. Marriage is God's wise design. And so in our discipleship, don't let sin separate what God has joined together. Let's look at this last part, this, this second room conversation, the, the conversation after the conversation in verses 10 through 12, God's anti-desire for marriage, right? So once they're away from the crowds, Jesus' disciples asked him to clarify what he had said. 
And Jesus' response is that either, uh, that either the man or the woman who divorces and marries another is guilty of adultery. And we know sin complicates life. But we need to remember that God's word is sufficient to address every problem that we have. That's why we memorize verses like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That the scriptures are breathed out by God and are profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God is fully equipped in every good work. Therefore, we can trust God's good word for the fullest of joy in our lives. And so we read this passage and, and it is right to then also consider all of what the Bible says in regards to marriage and divorce and remarriage. What exactly does the Bible teach about marriage and divorce? Well, we know that from Mark 12, that since there will be no marriage in the resurrection, that marriage is a temporary reality in this life. We know from Genesis 2 that it was created by God in creation. We know from 1 Corinthians 7 that when a Christian is married to a non-Christian, that the Christian should try and remain married. We learn that, that marriage is a picture of Jesus' love for his people in Ephesians 5, which is why it is intended to be permanent in life. We also learn there are reasons why someone may, but is not forced to pursue divorce. Right in Matthew 5, Jesus taught about sexual immorality being a biblical reason why one may pursue divorce. That's how God describes Israel as an unfaithful wife in her marriage to God in Jeremiah 3. We might think of, of what God says in Malachi 2, where God says that he hates divorce, and we should recognize that in a context where the old Israelite men are divorcing their wives just so they can marry young, young pagan women. In the law of Moses, God permitted divorce, but limited it for the protection of the wife in Deuteronomy 24. Interestingly enough, we, we think of Matthew 1. Joseph was planning on divorcing Mary quietly, showing that divorce does not always mean both parties had sinned. And yet, while we know that Joseph could have legally divorced her, which he didn't, which is a good thing, because she did not sin at all, Mary wasn't unfaithful. We also see in 1 Corinthians 7 that if an unbelieving spouse wants to divorce, Paul instructs us to let it be so. And so th that's where we get the picture of abandonment. And so, so abandonment at, in 1 Corinthians 7, and I would actually put uh, abuse as a form of abandonment. Uh, so abandonment and sexual morality are the two reasons where divorce is allowed. And remarriage is allowed in those cases as well, as well as in death, and the spouse is free to remarry. Paul says it's not, it's not sinful to do so. What we don't see are two believers who've been redeemed by Christ, who are slaves of Christ. We don't see them pursuing divorce though. In fact, Paul commands in 1 Corinthians of 7, if you are bound to a wife, do not seek to be free. So the call for married Christians is to seek reconciliation. Uh, one theologian put it this way, divorce is never desirable and among Christians 
It is never automatically inevitable. Through the gospel, broken relationships can heal. Because if God's power can raise Jesus from the dead, then marital issues among believers can find godly resolution when empowered by the Holy Spirit, when submitting to God's word, divorce is never desirable, and that for Christians, it is never automatically inevitable. After all, we don't want to encourage people to do what God forbids. So I think no-fault divorces should not exist among believers. Being joined together in marriage by God, God holds men and women accountable to their marriage vows. Divorce isn't okay just because someone is unhappy. Right? Think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that begins, and it says, what is the highest purpose for humanity? It says the chief end of humanity and every person is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It is in God where they find joy. There is no enjoyment and joy in God apart from following God. Christians can be faithful to their vows that they made before God in whom they find joy, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Think of Philippians 4. Even if their marriage is a struggle. So Jesus allows for divorce in some instances, but he certainly doesn't insist on it. What about technicalities? Right? What if I don't want a divorce, I just want to pursue legal separation? Right? Legal separation, which, which seems in effect like a partial divorce, I, I think that's looking for a loophole instead of applying the call for Christians to be a servant of all, to consider others more highly than ourselves. Right? In marriage, we must be humble and we are to be redemptive. Well, what if I want a divorce, but I just don't want to marry again? Well, if the divorce has a biblical reason, we've seen those things, there may not be any issue there. But what if one is pursuing relationships without the intent of marrying someone else, right? I mean, because Jesus says in verses 11 and 12, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, okay, well, if I just don't get married, well, then it's no problem. Well, but, but what's the point of pursuing the relationship? I think there's caution in the purpose of those relationships. What should I do if I want to divorce my spouse? Assuming both are Christians, if there's biblical grounds for divorce, I, there might be that possibility. But if you don't have biblical grounds, Christian, remember that it isn't only your decision to get married. Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together. Which means that it was the providential will of God. Jesus says what God has joined together, which means it wasn't an accident, even if you're in difficult waters right now. Let not man separate shows the intention of marriage to be for the life of the couple. A spouse is not a car that you can drive for 20 years and then upgrade. A spouse is not until you just get tired of things. Praise God, Jesus doesn't do that with us. Marriage isn't perfect, but we can trust God has not messed up in joining people together. If what was once a calm pond has become stormy waters, why well, I encourage Christian counseling, where a counselor helps bring a marriage to calmer waters. 
Whether, whether your marriage is strong or whether it's in facing storms, I encourage you to, to sign up for the, the marriage weekend that we have coming up in February, right, right around Valentine's Day where in this weekend for, for, for marriage tools, it gives us biblical tools for restoration. It gives us ways to build up what God has joined together for the picture of Jesus' love for his bride. Because marriage is God's wise design. And so in our discipleship, don't let sin separate what God has joined together. Right? Discipleship to Jesus isn't in name only. The human race is great at having lots to say, but, but little to show. No, discipleship to Jesus is where our words are matched with our lives. The gospel doesn't only affect our minds. It must also affect our lives for it to have an eternal purpose on us. And so to say that I follow Jesus in mind, but not in action, as we'll see in a couple weeks with the rich young ruler, might actually mean we don't follow Jesus at all. No, the gospel doesn't only affect our minds. It must also affect our lives for it to have any eternal purpose on us. Discipleship to Jesus must include our relationships. I think otherwise we're just looking for loopholes. Let's pray together. Saying, for my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. What good words. I hope that that those words will embody your trust in him this week. Hear now our benediction from Ephesians chapter 3. It says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your Lord's Day. Great having you today. We look forward to worshiping again with you soon.